Welcome back to the Bees Academy podcast. I'm Pete Sterling, and I'm really super excited right now because we're having our first guest, whoever came, and uh, that is Mr. Salvador Ramirez, Sal Ramirez. He's a friend of the uh, friend of the podcast, very recent friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, so we just recently met you. Um, you are a mayoral candidate for the Carmichael, California, where we are residing. Yes, um, super excited for that. I'm um, someone who's been in the world of education um, for my early part of my professional career, but now I'm in kind of the other spectrum. I'm in the um, world of hospice. So taking care of, formerly took care of the young, now I'm taking care of the old. <laughs> well, that's, that's really cool because what we're all about is trying to prepare our young to be old one day and to take over, you know, pass the baton to them and have them, you know, run and, and manage a really vibrant society. So mm -hmm. exactly. that's exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about your early educational career? Because I'm just getting to know you too. Sure. So um, I actually uh, never planned to be in the world of education. I, um, right out of college, a month after graduation, um, went into the Peace Corps. And while I was in the Peace Corps, um, my main uh, service project was to be um, an English teacher for every grade between fourth grade till university level. So I taught <laughs> a wide range of ages there. And um, it was a lot of fun because it was kind of a, a cross-cultural experience for me. I was able to share um, the American ways as well as uh, my own personal um, background, which is uh, Mexican-American. So I was able to share uh, Mexican heritage in teaching kids um, how to learn to speak English. So that was a great opportunity for me. Um, and then I later on uh, worked for um, the Head Start program. I was the regional, Northern California regional manager for the migrant Head Start uh, sites. So I would travel to all these small rural areas throughout uh, Northern California and um, it was great. So we were with, uh, we were serving kids um, 18 months old till, uh, till five years old. So to get them ready for kindergarten. Um, and that was a great experience too. Um, so, uh, you know, I always recommend Peace Corps and Head Start to everyone that I meet. As an English teacher, mm -hmm. do you have any insights as, as to what might be the, some of the best ways to, to teach the English language? Okay. Somebody who doesn't, or like, <laughs> and I know you're talking about fifth or age five through university, so it's very different at each level. But yes, what are your some of your favorite so ways or okay? Or ways well, well, um, the thing that really um, I tried to steer away from was rote learning um, because kids, especially at young ages, are just not interested in repetitive. Um, things unless they are super engaged and um, for my uh, younger kids when I was teaching English it would be a lot of movies American movies um, that I used to get them not only just engaged but to get them to see a pattern of um, expressions and words being used and how they were supposed to be used not just you know a way they they might have thought it meant something, but it didn't actually mean that. So movies were great. Um, the younger kids loved that because 
they kind of felt like it was a recess for them. They got to sit in class and watch an American movie, and they were just like, wow, I can't believe this is actually school. And um, it was exciting to see their excitement. It was like a reciprocal excitement going on because it would be movies I loved, like, for example, Dumb and Dumber. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lots of comedy and lots of funny things that it's, that transcends language barriers. If you have comedy, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to help teach people. I could not agree more with the comedy aspect, especially in that. So if I, I, a lot of times I think back on my own childhood and like, how did I learn things? What, what was it that stuck and what didn't? And, mm-hmm. what, you know, and I agree with you that rep- repetition and just you know, repeating forms over and over again is it's not, it's not a great way to reach kids. And I think that it's not the way we speak. It's not what we, it's not what we do. It's not how we use language. So why would you practice something in a way that you don't use it? But I also agree with you that the movies and the comedy are super good because I remember when I was learning Spanish as a young kid, around age four or so, the first time we went to Mexico, it was Looney Tunes dubbed into Spanish. <laughs> and you know, yeah. so Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny and uh, like Speedy Gonzalez mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, uh, was was uh, you know the who's the, the Yosemite Sam? Oh yeah, yeah. I love those guys, and they it's super funny, it's super physical, and so you matching the physicality yeah. of the humor with the language, and so it's a really great way to to learn that. Yeah, and so um, that was for my younger kids. I would use uh, movies. All different, all different kinds, um, not just comedies, sometimes romance, the ones I was allowed to show. Um, and for the older kids, um, it would be, uh, we would kind of do a lot of um, practice in modeling, you know, uh, I, I call them fake situational, um, like, instances or relationships. So it would be play acting. So I would give those students roles. I would say, you are this person, you are this person, and you are this person. And you know what you're supposed to try to convey. And, I'm, and then I would say, you know, I'm going to let you um, create your own script, create your own type of dialogue using the English words you do know. And then the words you don't know, say them in your natural language. And I will tell you what the English word is for that. So it helps fill in the gaps, um, it helps them practice, and it helps them learn, um, you know, like how the flow is supposed to happen in a natural way, and eventually they don't feel so self-conscious about doing it, and that's one of the things um, about uh, foreign language learners is they might actually in their mind know exactly what they're supposed to say but in action they might not feel confident to do it so practicing it out in a role play for my older students was i think the most successful way of teaching them how to how to speak english how to how to have the cadence you're supposed to in a normal english conversation um so yeah different methods you know what else i love about english as a language and i think a lot of people don't appreciate it's some of its abilities to to be adaptive to whoever whoever the speaker is. You can you can mold it molds itself to the speaker very well. I think better than better some, than some other languages that are that are very regimented. And I mm-hmm. think that 
you know, a lot of times you'll hear British people come over to the States and be like, oh, the Americans ruined the language. And I think it's the absolutely the opposite. <laughs> I think we, we gave it life <clears throat> by all of the different cultures that it came and it adapts itself to mm -hmm. wherever you come from, you can bring your, like there are German forms that show up in American English and mm -hmm. there's, there's Mexicanisms and there's, there's Frenchisms. We adopt languages that we just, if another language has a word for something that is better than our word, we just use that word instead. Very true. And Very so true. <laughs> I, and because what you're talking about is giving a, a language learner confidence in speaking the language. And I, I've noticed that as well, that there's a lot of people who they're like, oh, I don't sound right. Or my accent mm -hmm. isn't clean. And I try, whenever I get a chance, I try to tell them, I'm like, you know, that might be true in your culture. You might be a little bit, people might be hard on you for having the wrong accent or mm -hmm. not saying things perfectly right, but it's not true here. We think it's cute. We <laughs> like it. <laughs> we love yeah. your accent. We, we love the, your different way of saying something. That's Just true. spit it out. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a lot of um, freedom <laughs> of expression in, in, in our country, which is great. Um, and so, you know, that was, uh, those were the two types of methods I used when I was doing um, my uh, f foreign language teaching abroad. Um, and then a method that I used with my, um, my younger kiddos, um, the ones from eight, at Head Start from 18 months to five years old, it was a different type of um, teaching. I wasn't their actual teacher, but I would need to sometimes step into the classroom and help. Um, there's a uh, there's a certain um, regulation that needs to be upheld with number of adult bodies in the classroom, um, just for licensing purposes and that kind of thing. And so I would sometimes need to step into the classroom. And when you're there and you used to be a teacher, you just sometimes jump into the role of teaching the little kids. And um, with those young ones, they loved um, any kind of experiential learning so if you would if you had um toys around you and you know the a lot of these kids spanish is their first language and that was actually the case for me spanish was my first language before english um so i would pick up like a toy frog and i would say this is a rana and then do you know how to say this in english and so then I'd pass it around, let them play with it, let them try to say it in English. And like you said, it was cute because they would have their little accents and they don't, they're so young, they don't know that they're saying it wrong. But the point isn't that they're saying it wrong. The point is that they're saying it and trying to say it. Um, so lots of little experiential things where they can touch whatever it is, the subject matter you're on. Um, and if they could play with it and if they could you know, have fun with it. That was the kind of uh, method for teaching those younger ones um, that I would use when I would step into the classroom with them. I like the experiential stuff as well. It's, uh, it's really cool to watch like, you know, I'm picturing like, you know, kids on a playground playing in the sand and then all of a sudden you find a little anthill and then it's like what, you know, in your, in your mind as a child, you're in some ways you're following your, you're following the ant down that hole and you're mm -hmm. kind of imagining the city and you, I remember it, it's it's a really fun thing, and and then as an adult to kind of keep a a semi hands off approach, allowing them to just feel and experience the world as mm -hmm. it is, and then letting them tell you about it. Yeah. And as they tell yeah. you about it, then they you know let 
let them thrash through the language. That's how you learn. And so tell, us, tell me what's going on, no matter how crazy it is. Mm -hmm. And just let them say crazy stuff because yeah. it's their imagination. And I think the worst thing that, that we as adults can do to a kid is to squash their imagination and, and make the world a, a human place rather than just a, a mass expansive yeah. place. Of, so yeah. no, that's super interesting. Yeah, when they have the freedom to, freedom to imagine is when they can really do a lot of learning. Um, and that builds leaders, that builds um, confident um, adults. And so yeah, um, exactly how you said, having the freedom to imagine is a big part of, of um, how little kids should be taught. Um, but I did want to also share um, in, in uh, my, my Head Start schools, we would do, because um, a lot of the um, parents are, you know, st you know, straight from Mexico and only here for certain months of the year working. Um, so there are holidays that we would try to honor that are Mexican holidays um, for the kids because we know that their parents are celebrating these and they're away from their parents um, during the early hours of the morning while they're working until way late into the evening. So one of the ones that was my favorite was Dia de los Muertos. And um, with that one, we all would dress up um, in traditional clothes. We would encourage them, to, their parents, to let the kids dress up too, but we would also have little tiny clothes for them to dress up in. Um, so it would be a fun full day of um, our version in the Mexican culture of a Halloween uh, type of holiday. You're talking about the little kids and the costumes. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what the role the dressing up plays in Dia de los Muertos? Yeah, so there's a lot of um, really cool stuff that um, people of all ages who celebrate Dia de los Muertos get to do. But like for the little kids, they love getting their faces painted. We would do um, in the style of, of a skull on their actual face, which I know sounds morbid, but um, it's just part of the tradition. And um, lots of really colorful clothing. Um, it's, it's, it's a big celebration. Um, and so, you know, it's um, I think November 2nd, November 1st and November 2nd is the actual day it's celebrated, but we do it around the... Um, Halloween time and um, there are some certain things that are done so um, there are ofrendas ofrendas mean uh, it means offerings and so what that would include are sugar skulls so we would have the little kids um, try and make sugar skulls obviously theirs wouldn't look that good but we use the ones we make um, and we put those in in the altar for the offering and um, sempasuchils which are marigolds. Um, that's the um, Aztec word um, in Nahuatl for marigolds. It's sempasuchils. And so the kids um, get to experience cutting those um, and the smells of it and the color of it and how it kind of gets on their fingers and um, putting those in the um, offering at the altar. And then, um, you know, lots of really fun pastries um, to go along with the sugar skulls that are also offered. So these offerings are for the dead. So um, at the altar, we would have the kids bring um, photos of people in their life who've passed away, maybe a grandmother or a grandfather. 
And um, with those photos displayed at the altar, um, all of the offerings that are given, um, it's for those people who have passed. And so it's done in a way that's very celebratory. The kids get to remember um, those people in their lives. And um, in a way, it's, it's kind of metaphysical because um, these photographs of the people who've passed aren't really going to be able to eat these things. Um, so they do go to waste in a way, but it's just the symbolism of it. Um, and that's what's been really fun for those little kiddos to get to learn about um, some of their traditional Mexican history in that way. No, and I, I love it. We've been talking about it all month. Like I, I think I mentioned to you before we started about how we've been talking all month about Halloween and mm-hmm. Dia de los Muertos and kind of this time of year, like the, the borderline between the, the inframundo in Spanish, the underworld and the, and the above ground world, our mm-hmm. world. Um, it blurs and we all walk the the land together for this one two or three night period yeah. at yeah. the end of the year in in more pagan cultures but one of the things that's kind of a funny thought I had but like is with the offendedness and like mm-hmm. the family members coming back it seems like how do you choose how do you choose <laughs> who you're inviting back and who you're making altars to, to it seems like there would be a lot of people if you've got a lot of ancestors coming back do you do certain people get forgotten? I don't know if it sounds like a stupid <laughs> question, but I'm just no, really curious. No, that's a good question. I think, and you know, I will tell you, this is, it's kind of a, a funny thing every year. There are people in um, everyone's own unique personal family um, uh, dynamics that they're all in agreement. yes, let's honor this person, right? They're like, we all love them and they were great. Then there are some people in the family that um, maybe you don't feel like honoring them, but um, it's it's obviously there's no <laughs> rhyme or reason to why people choose who they honor. But sometimes if you are doing your own personal altar um, at home and not one that is, you know, with your whole family involved, um, you just choose who you want. And so if it's a person who's passed who you um, never were able to have closure with or make peace with their passing, you know, some people do their own personal altars and they have those individuals there um, to kind of help cope um, with their passing. Or if, if this person did something bad in their life, you know, it's also a way to forgive them. It's just a way to remember how they were connected to you, whether, you know, regardless of whether it was good or bad. Um, and then just making peace with it and giving them an opportunity to um, symbolically be present in your life again. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting um, holiday that we celebrate in the Mexican culture. Um, and um, like I said, it's a very festive um, holiday and there's a lot of honoring of the dead that, that goes along with that. But I... I wanted to kind of share the spectrum of of Mexican culture in how we deal with death because there's also um, a folklore story called La Llorona um, where it kind of gives the opposite of celebrating death. Um, so in that story, there is a woman who um, is married to, I believe, a conquistador, which is a Spanish um, settler. And one day she sees that, um, or she 
I don't know if it's real or imagined, but she believes that she sees him with another woman. So in this fit of rage, um, she drowns their kids in the river. And immediately she regrets it. And um, As you would. As, a, as any <laughs> person would, exactly. And uh, what happens, though, is she roams trying to find her, you know, her kids. Um, even, I mean, so she drowned them, so we know they're gone. But in her pain and anguish, she's searching for them. And um, I believe there's different versions of this story, but I believe she also drowns herself. And so her soul goes around, um, wanders the earth, and try and tries to take children um, because she believes they are her own children. And so in um, Mexican culture, that story is shared. We talk about we talk about La Llorona during um, Dia de los Muertos, but she's brought up all through you know all year round um, because it's a in a way it's trying to be a didactic story for kids to um, you know listen to their parents and so they'll say a parent will say <laughs> we'll drown you <laughs> yeah in in a, in a sense so the parents will say don't run over there don't get close to the street don't do this don't do that or la llorona will come and get you meaning that it's it's a fear-based association with death in the sharing of la llorona um so yeah i just wanted to share that spectrum of mexican culture and death um uh, because while we do have one that's festive and celebratory with Dia de los Muertos, there's also the other end of the spectrum with La Llorona. No, and I think that's it's absolutely amazing thing to talk about because I think one of these like lifelong projects of mine has been to try to figure out, you know, I grew up in an Irish American family around a lot of Mexican people mm -hmm. and speaking Spanish. And I just have always seen such parallels between the two cultures, despite yeah. the fact that you know, they speak different languages and are, have origins across an ocean from each other. Mm -hmm. the, and one of those is that obsession with death. And there's both the, the embrace of it on the one hand and the deathly fear of it on the other. And oh, yeah. I, did, I really do think that, that's, um, that the story of La Llorona is really interesting because it really has, it's like an Irish ghost story in a way. Mm. There is the, the, you know, the Irish idea of a ghost is that something's left undone, some, some, uh, something's left undone or some dissatisfaction in life or an unwillingness to die mm. could be the reason why a soul will stay on the earth and refuse to ascend to heaven mm -hmm. and then usually will haunt you. <laughs> but kind of in an inverse to what you're talking about of, of maybe not inviting a soul back to your ofrenda mm -hmm. because maybe they weren't your favorite family member right they, you right. know so it, maybe in the inverse of that you've got what the irish a lot of times do is like if you don't treat me right i will haunt you it's a threat <laughs> you know as a threat and it's funny so it kind of makes me think it's like you know you could use a you could if you wanted use a similar threat in, in a Mexican family, say, hey, you know, <laughs> if you're not good, we're not going to put in a friend for you. We're not going to invite That's you back. True. That's true. You know, I'm not saying you would or should, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's just interesting and it's kind of a fun. They're both fun holidays. Um, yeah, so that's, um, where should we go from here, man? There was like the, there's so much in what you're talking about with the 
traditions yeah, about well, the the dress and the and the flowers. Yes, yes. You know, in in my quick reading of it, and I I consider myself a total student of this holiday. I mm -hmm. find it fascinating, though. The, the flowers. It seems like the the scent of the flowers mm -hmm. is something that helps attract and guide the yes. the spirits to the altar. Yes, as well as the bright yellow colors, kind of shining and a light in the in the night. Yeah, and so um, I was talking a little bit earlier before about the um, the face painting and doing it in the style of. Um, of a skull and so there are actual you know figurines and paintings and um, motifs of um, it's, it's called La Catrina and the Catrina is basically a a, a dead um, skeletal woman which sounds horrible but she's dressed up and she's made to look alive with you know braided hair extensions and a hat and colorful dress dresses and uh, sometimes they put they paint the nails on her skeleton <laughs> just to make it look like it's a person right and um, even though that seems morbid in Mexican culture it's it's actually beautiful because it's like this is the one time of the year they're alive again um, and with the marigolds you were mentioning yeah it's it's part of the whole colorful um, calling them back to this earth and attracting them um, type of ceremony. There are other things involved too, um, like with the um, Aztec traditions of burning um, sage and copal. Copal comes from um, a tree that's only grown in certain parts of Central America. Um, those are um, sacred ancient smells that are also part of attracting the dead back to um, back to the earth. Um, the the smoke that goes into the sky is part of connecting them, and it's like a rope to bring them down. And so there's all of these wonderful aspects in um, a celebration for Dia de los Muertos that um, has you know a lot of life in it. Um, so that's why it's. It's many people's very. It's many people's favorite holiday. So the smoke from the copal is like the. That's like a rope that ascends from heaven. So they, yeah, it so anchors. Are the spirits coming from above or from below? Do you? Do I you think have they a sense could, of that. I think they. I mean, they could. So or smoke, from both. Yeah, I think I think from all, everywhere, every direction, because um, the smoke can travel up, the smoke can travel down, can travel to the sides. Um, wherever it travels is where it's bringing the people to um, the source of uh, the 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 burning. So it's typically done. The sage or the copal is typically done in in albacore shell, and so that's that's the center of where these spirits will come to, um, because it's their anchor from where the smoke is traveling from. And um, you'll also often see, especially in, uh, in Mexico, um, there are Aztec dancers that have all of these wonderful um, dances um, in the ceremony. So the other ceremonial like activities around Dia de los Muertos yeah. and yeah. The, the parades, the processions, what is, what's the purpose of a procession in Dia de los Muertos? Well, for um, from my understanding, it's just it's it's part of the whole process. So um, it's 
uh, it's a very community oriented um, type of um, celebration. So you have people who are, um, you know, gathering together, and and the procession the procession is is part of that gathering. Everyone who goes to a ceremony is part of the ceremony, um, and so um, it's it's also something that is. Um, the, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, like cathartic for people um, in, you know, walking up to the altar, giving your offerings, and, you know, you're there with your family, or you're there with your friends, or family friends, or extended family that you didn't even know you had. They're all there. They're part of this community and watching you do this because they're going to do it too. They're going to walk up to the altar and give the offering. And um, so this is not a spectator sport. No, no, (laughs) not at all, because a lot of people will cry. A lot of people will laugh. And it's the the range of human emotion is there in in that ceremony. And, you know, the community aspect to it, um, especially in the the procession part of it, is something that, um, you know, it's I guess it could be kind of. compared to in a Catholic church walking up to get the body of Christ, that it's supposed to do something for, for that person, um, you know, fulfilling their need to go every week to have that moment happen. You could kind of compare that to this type of thing. You're walking up to give the offering to um, acknowledge the dead, per- dead person or people in your family, but it's part of the ceremony. And um, you're getting what you came to do in that moment. Um, so it's, it's really fun to see if you've never been to one of these ceremonies. Um, and it's really fun to be a part of. Are there ever, are there ever like altars or for maybe like a public person or a really important person in a town that maybe, maybe you're not related to, but that a lot of people would... Uh, have an altar or an ofrenda for them? Sure. So I'll give you an example, um, kind of like how I was telling about um, the the ceremony of, you know, going weekly to church to walk up to get the body of Christ. Um, there is, where my parents are from in Mexico, um, there is a famous patron saint, um, Padre Toribio. And um, normally people will do a um, kind of like a, Hmm, how do I describe it? They will walk from a certain faraway point to that um, church that he was um, te- uh, preaching at, but they don't actually walk. They they walk on their knees, so they kind of crawl that very long distance, um, and, and they um, suffer in pain that whole time to get there. And so just like on, on a normal... Um, not on a normal day, but... That is a normal Sunday. That's just like a normal thing that happens for celebration of him. But during Dia de los Muertos, the fun part of that whole um, knee-walk-crawl thing that happens is the ofrenda and the, the ofrendas are given at the altar for him in front of his church. And so there's photos of him... Um, there's people, uh, from his family. I think he came from a big family, even though he didn't have 
um, Kits himself being a priest. Um, but his family members will be there. And so, yeah, you know, he's a big public figure for that town. And um, on Day of the Dead, he is um, celebrated. So Yeah, that pilgrimage march on your knees is such a Mexican thing, isn't mm -hmm. it? Like, I remember the first time I was at the Basilica de Guadalupe in Mexico City, there was people doing that. Yeah. And it was, so I was a little kid and I was just, I, you know, I was coming from the States. I didn't, I didn't know what to think, but mm -hmm. they were obviously in pain. Yes. Like really, I mean, it's not a joke. They are the commitment mm -hmm. and they were bleeding from their knees and mm -hmm. it was, and some of them, they were not young people either. These were older people you wouldn't expect look, look like they had a hard time walking on their feet. Yeah. But they were, I don't know from how far they were coming, but mm -hmm. that's no joke. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little bit about the, about the dancing too. Sure. In the present, in the processions mm -hmm. and. Just offline, you just were telling me about how you used to dance. Yes, um, so I was part of an Aztec dance group, and um, there are uh, major ceremonies that happen throughout the year based off of, you know, like there's the summer solstice one, there's one um, called Shipe, which is for the children, so there's a special ceremony for them. There's a ceremony um, called Guerreros, which means warrior, um, for um, young men going into manhood. They have to, it's actually a whole year long process. And the ceremony for that is the culmination of that year long process um, where um, they have their own special dance that they do in front of um, their community. And, you know, I'm not recalling the other, what the other ceremony is for, but um, during the Day of the Dead, um, Aztec dancers from around the world, because they are around the world, um, you know, they gather and they dance and offer up um, the the beat of the drum. They offer up um, the uh, on their feet. It's called ayoyotes. They're they are um, sh uh, how do I describe it? They're carved out um, big seeds from a tree that, when they uh, clash together, make um, the sound of rattling. And so that's another um, part of the ceremony because you have the drums, you have the ayoyotes, you have, um, you know, the certain um, gritos, which are just, they're like yells. There are certain things that are um, said while you're dancing as part of the offering. Um, and in this case, for the de los Muertos, it's the offering to the dead people that are being celebrated. That's really nice. There's a, um, that the Latino Arts and Culture Center here in Sacramento is mm -hmm. doing some of these tonight, which I'm kind of hoping to check out as yeah. a kind of a, what a, not prelude, but epilogue to our conversation yeah. to this whole month of exploring these two holidays. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and, and one thing I can also share about um, Aztec dancing, um, you will probably have the privilege of seeing them at many um, activist events um, and you will see that they're wearing feathers um, on on a head on a headpiece the feathers like I was explaining earlier about the smoke the feathers actually represent um, a, another direct connection to the um, above world like the the world up there um, so the feather is an extension for 
their connection to the spirit world up there. And so some have very elaborate headdresses with lots of feathers. Some have simple feathers, but um, the feathers are are that are basically that portal. I know that sounds a little weird, but that's what, they, what it is. <laughs> no, I don't think it sounds that weird, actually, because it seems like the feather kind of gives the spirit flight. Yeah, yeah, that's so, a good way to put it. So if you make yourself light like a bird and you can fly, you can basically transcend the whatever's holding you to the ground. Sure. Which is gravity in yeah. scientific terms but you know it's your your connection to the earth yeah and you kind and of sever that a little bit by giving yourself flight yeah no that's a really good way to put it and in um in the celebrations for dia de los muertos um when there are asset dancers they will uh, part of their specific ceremony for this is they will dance all night um from sun down to sunrise and um, you can just imagine how tired these dancers are, but they're offering their energy and their sweat and sometimes their blood um, to to those spirits. And they, they believe that that connection with the feathers, that is one way of transporting their energy that they're offering up to those other spirits. Do you know why they dance all night? Why? Why pass the entire night I dancing think, in this way? I think there's a little bit of um, um, and I've only experienced it a couple of times, but there's a little bit of a not hallucinate halluc. How, how do you say hallucinatory? that? Hallucinatory. Hallucinatory effect. Effect. Um, because you're literally overtired and you're dancing when ex um, ex expounding a lot of energy and um there's something spiritual about it um for the dancer themselves where um you kind of feel like you're you're transcending your body um and i don't think that that's why a lot of dancers do it but i know that that does happen to a lot of dancers in those ceremonies where it's done you know overnight just you know picture yourself driving overnight and having to focus i mean that's something you feel sometimes out of your body and um that's exactly during that time yeah that's um one of those one of the towns i when i wrote the story that i had the podcast earlier i was talking about this one specific uh, pueblito that's called uh san agustin etla which is in oaxaca mm. and they do the all night thing with the dancing not it doesn't seem like in what I saw, it didn't seem like a traditional Aztec dance. They were dressing up kind of like in like Lucha Libre masks. Oh, and like, yeah. And yeah. kind of like photos of that. demon masks and yeah. stuff like that. But they were wearing suits of just these tiny little like rattles and they had little mirrors on them. Mm. And some of those townspeople were explaining that the reason why they were dressed this way, the rattles make the noise and the the light kind of shines funny off of the, the little mirrors on their clothes and that disorients the, the evil mm. spirits. And so it's almost like they are blocking and tackling for the family members as they make, so the whole underworld opens up. Mm -hmm. And so all the bad spirits as well as all the good spirits of your ancestors show up. And so you want to use the altar and the smells of the, of the marigolds and the and the food and everything mm -hmm. that kind of draws your ancestors to you. But at the same time, you have people out in the streets who are <laughs> disorienting and confusing the bad yeah. spirits. And so that they're kind of like getting 
getting pushing the the bad away while drawing the good to you. Yeah, and which I, I think, thought was a really beautiful idea. I think um, the the mirror little mirror shards um, that are attached. Um, I th- I think, and it might have I might have heard this from you. I'm not sure, but um, it's a way to also have that spirit see itself and and think oh okay i'm not gonna mess with this person because they're they are also a spirit too no you didn't hear that from me but that's awesome (laughs) no no because if you if you are a bad spirit you probably don't like the sight of yourself you know like yeah that's why the the vampire can't see himself in the mirror can he so but (laughs) the um isn't there an irish tradition with mirrors there are um I'm trying to think about yeah. So there's these things where you have like ghosts in mirrors. You have like the like the whole like Bloody Mary thing, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, speaking into a broken mirror. But yeah, I I'm not drawing them up really clearly in my head right now. But yeah. So yeah, and also in Jewish culture, there's Shiva when someone passes. Um, it's it's a period of mourning and also remembrance of that uh, person's death. But what they do with mirrors is they actually cover the mirrors, I think, halfway um, with a cloth or a blanket. And that's part of the process of doing Shiva. So that's, you know, to speaking about cross-culturally, there, there's another celebration with death involving mirrors there. Yeah, that's nice. So we were talking about the, you know, the bad spirits versus the, the good spirits. And I do see that there's kind of a... A dual nature to both the Halloween in the way the Irish celebrate it and Dia de los Muertos the way it's celebrated in Mexico you were talking earlier about the the spectrum of of the way death is viewed in the Mexican culture between the, the fear of it versus the embrace right and uh, it's in in my outside view looking in on Dia de los Muertos it I see a lot of the family being drawn together, a lot of honoring of the of the dead, and a lot of honoring of your well, honoring of the dead, but also the fact that everybody who's still alive gets together, mm-hmm. and it, it's a way of drawing everyone back together. Would you? What role does that other the the, the fear portion play mm-hmm. in in the day? Is it more of a unifying? A family unifying day, or is it? Help me understand that. However sure. you want. Sure. So, um, yeah, I was I was sharing a little bit, um, or touching a little bit on this in the uh, procession part. Um, the The whole celebration really is a way of showcasing the range of human emotion when it comes to, um, you know, a loved one passing. So there's laughter. There's crying. There's, um, you know, there's joy. There's all kinds of emotions going on. Um, the the fear part, though, um, I think that's what a lot. That's what um, is discussed a little bit, coming more so from the kids, because the kids um, are are trying to understand um, what death means, and this type of ceremony is a way to cope with death. And so the kids do have fear because, I mean, um, skeletons are not necessarily meant, um, are not necessarily seen as a lot of people, uh, by a lot of people as beautiful. 
And in these type of ceremonies, it's oh, it's a reframing of that to share that it is beautiful because um, this is something that every human will experience is death. So when when fear gets brought up, it's mostly the younger kids who are still learning about um, these traditions, expressing that they're scared of how it looks. But by the end of it, when they have all those good treats and have all the good food and um, are surrounded by all of their family, um, their, their framework for what death means has shifted and, and fear um, is something that goes away. Um, so it's a really good experience um, for them and for everyone else involved. You know what, Sal? I actually love that description more than I actually thought you were going to answer. It was a better answer than I even thought <laughs> you were going to give because I was actually thinking about that in contrast, the way that you know traditionally Halloween is is thought of and the way it came here with the Irish was that it was they were more afraid. It was more of a they were staving off the bad spirits as they walked the earth mm-hmm. and, and there was a family unification that would occur when they would they would gather in the houses or around the fire and they did have activities they would bob for apples and mm. they would play games and i do think that and i never thought about it until you just said that probably a very similar net effect mm. on on children with their there was the fear that that maybe even the adults I mean, obviously the adults fear death just as much as kids do, but we're going through this whole process of trying to understand what the role of death is in our lives and right. also overcoming that fear so that we can live. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the cool things about Halloween um, as it's done here in the U.S. is I think originally it was meant that people were meant to dress up to scare off the spirits. Um, but now it's changed into playful and, um, you know, you do see some gory type of, of outfits, but, um, you can see in American culture how, um, Halloween has shifted from the original, um, way of trying to dressing up to scare off the spirit and now dressing up and it's less even about spirits it's just about having fun mm-hmm. so you know but no i think you're right i think they did shift it and i think it came a day when you can be that spirit rather mm-hmm. than rather than staving them staving them off I, exactly I, I do think that that's totally true and i also think that a lot of those original ideas i'm, I'm talking about them as if they're they're known to the general mm. like culture but mm-hmm. i don't think that they really are i think most of what remains is just the trappings of an old, an old traditional holiday, yeah, and I, yeah. I think there's a big difference there in Dia de los Muertos because I think it is actually more an an active holiday that's still being celebrated. Yeah, it's celebrated in rooted in tradition. However, when I'm like looking into this, mm-hmm. and I, you know, one of the biggest things I wanted to do was talk to people like yourself who are from the culture and celebrate the the holiday and i spoke to a lot of younger mexican-americans and asked them like what did you know tell me about dia de los muertos mm-hmm. and they, they really didn't know very much it was almost as if and these were these are mexican-americans yeah yeah so who i would presume or at least their, their english is perfect so i don't know if it, their first language or not but right. um definitely mexican-americans and younger and it seemed like it was becoming for them the way Halloween had become for 
many mm. Americans where all that remained was the the outside trappings. Mm. The, you dress, you know, maybe you dress up this way or you eat a certain like pan de muerto on yeah. that day. Yeah. But the idea and what happens behind it is seems like it might be getting lost. Am I am I wrong here? No, or? you're not wrong. And and um you know, these are things that are important. They are very important to talk about because um, the the losing of tradition is something that um, unfortunately does happen. Um, but there has been a big, um, I would say, revival of um, the, this Day of Dead celebration in Mexico itself. Um, so it's hugely popular. Um, but what what as you were describing is happening in the u.s is um there's um first generation second generation and third generation um uh i i say uh americans of mexican descent um that aren't always being taught the traditions by um you know people people in their families and that's just something that happens um when cultures assimilate to um, to a different land, um, we know that Mexico or that California was part of Mexico back in the day, but California is is part of America now, and it's as American as any other state. And so you are going to get some loss of culture um, when there are iterations of generations living in this land, um, and. The um, the hope is that um, you know more first, second, and third generation and onward of um, of the people living here will embrace their heritage. And what I think might happen um, is it's gonna, Day of the Dead is going to become such a popular American. Um, celebration that these people who have lost some of the understanding of the tradition will think oh well okay I will do it too so it's kind of I think it will go back to um, back to the way uh, it was because these younger people will see that it's it's actually cool and they know it's cool because it's reflected in the greater American ethos, um, and that will bring them back to their own history. So it's funny how you can lose history, but you can also gain it back. I think that's totally correct, and I, I do actually see Dia de los Muertos getting broader, broader traction in the culture that non-Mexican Americans or mm-hmm. not or Americans not of Mexican descent, mm-hmm. as you say, are embracing. If nothing else, just the iconography of the of the the highly decorated and stylized skulls and the oh, yeah. the dressing, but there is like, especially in agricultural areas, there's a, a revival of Dia de los Muertos, and I think that's a good thing. And I also think it's a good thing as Americans to not allow traditions from old worlds to disappear, mm-hmm. because I think one of the great it's the it's the double-edged sword of of being an American mm-hmm. is that we have we are a melting pot of many many different cultures, mm-hmm. and what makes us a beautiful culture is that we take a little bit of that sazon from all these different mm-hmm. cultures and we make that our own and yeah. 
but the danger is that we over melt ourselves and we become bland mm -hmm. and then we lose when we start losing the Irishness out of Halloween out of Dia de los Muertos mm -hmm. the the Christianity out of Christmas mm -hmm. the everything else that we might lose on the holiday only with the trappings it becomes bland and boring and right so that's the danger but I do think that you're right I, I share your optimism yeah I, 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 I I'm hopeful you know that uh, these younger uh, generations will go back to back to the heritage and I will say um, you know there are artists like Frida Kahlo who embraced um, that native um, Aztec and, and native uh, Mexico um, iconography and traditions and so you see Frida Kahlo everywhere here in the U.S., and you see people really embracing um, what she, what she chose to portray in imagery. Um, in it, it, you know, it's reflected in pop art now. It's reflected in fashion trends. Her face is everywhere, and that's one example of of what I was just sharing. How these um, younger generations of of people who are maybe first, second, third, or fourth generation in America, when they see their own history reflected here uh, in the greater um, mass-marketed America, then they do go back to their roots. And, you know, it gives them an opportunity to learn. And as you were saying, um, if it's... If it's, uh, how did you describe it? You said it was the trappings of... Um, oh, just the outside decoration, the decoration. Like the diluted. The, yeah, the, it becomes kind of bland. Again. Yeah, so, it, the, so the diluted version of it. So when they're, when they're exposed to, for example, Frida Kahlo and everything that she portrays, and they see, oh, well, okay, this is a diluted version because I'm researching it and I'm seeing she actually did all of this other stuff then that's the learning they're doing themselves about their own history. And that's where I'm hoping that more and more uh, people will find the root of this holiday and Mexican traditions. And, you know, I can, I can only wish for the best on that. What's crazy about like Frida Kahlo, just to digress for a, little, mm -hmm. a minute, is how meta she is. As an artist, she was a very talented artist. and But is she herself the artist her the images of her became what's most iconic about her yeah and so her life became kind of uh visual performance art oh yeah absolutely. rather even though it's almost more more known the images of her are almost more known than her actual art oh yeah which is crazy yeah and even when i was just in mexico um at all of the little flea markets there were just all of these cool versions of her everywhere in cartoon forms in in all kinds of different ways she was depicted and i and i thought that was cool because i'm like you know what she's popular in the u.s and she's popular in mexico again and all that tells me is that someone somewhere is learning about mexican history absolutely well sal it has been a genuine pleasure to have you on Bees Academy Podcast as our first guest. You're amazing. I loved every bit of what we've been learning, and 
I really appreciate it. I really do thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I learned about um, Irish tradition, and so I thank you for that, and I hope the listeners, um, you know, submit any questions they might have um, and ideas for another podcast, and maybe I could come on if it's something that I have some knowledge in. So thank you for having me. And thank you, dear listener. I hope that you've enjoyed getting to know Sal Ramirez as much as I enjoy speaking with him. And we hope you've enjoyed our month of following Dia de los Muertos and Halloween through conversation and story. If this is your first time listening to us, please consider going back to the beginning and seeing what we've been building up to. Also check out our website, beesacademy.org, that's B-E-A-S academy.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Or check us out on Facebook or Instagram. We'll be back again next Friday, and until then, have a great time.